Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Ream Library. My name is Tom Landy. I'm the director of the Center for Religion, Ethics, and Culture, and I coordinate with uh, Professor Alan Avery Peck the Kraft Hyatt Fund for Jewish Christian Understanding. Through the fund, we've been able to do a great deal of great programming at Holy Cross, send faculty to Jerusalem to study at Yad Vashem, send students uh, in the summer to study at the Rothberg School at Hebrew University, and uh, bring some great Jewish scholars here to speak to us. Tonight, we're pleased to welcome among those, uh, Susanna Heschel. Susanna is a scholar of Jewish-Christian relations and the history of anti-Semitism. She's Eli Black Professor of Jewish Studies at Dartmouth College, currently on a two-year sabbatical with a grant from the Carnegie Foundation to write the history of Jewish scholarship on Islam. One of the things I'm conscious of about all people is our capacity to remake God in our own image, to make God look and believe what it is we believe. And uh, that's happened in a number of ways across history. Tonight, Professor Heschel's book is a moment, a rather scary version of that, a rather frightening one. Her book that she's speaking on tonight is called The Aryan Jesus, Christian Theologians and the Bible in Nazi Germany. Professor uh, Heschel has also written uh, Abraham Geiger and the Jewish Jesus, which won the National Book Award in Germany's Geiger Prize. And she's been editor of several books, including a collection of her father's essays called Moral Grandeur and Spiritual Audacity, Essays of Abraham Joshua Heschel. Her father, Rabbi Heschel, was a remarkable teacher, theologian, philosopher, and civil rights and anti-war activist in the 20th century. And now Susanna is a noted scholar in her own right. Uh, just this last weekend, I think, at St. Michael's College in uh, Toronto, the University of Toronto, she received an honorary doctorate for her scholarly achievements in the area of Jewish studies and in particular her expertise in the area of Jewish-Christian relations in Germany during the 19th and 20th centuries. So we congratulate her for that and welcome her tonight. Thank you, Tom Landy and, and, and Alan also, Alan Avery Peck, for inviting me this evening to speak to you. I'm glad to be here, although it's an unpleasant topic to have to tell you about, especially in such a beautiful room. This is such a beautiful room. Don't take it for granted. This is really a, this is the most beautiful room I've ever been in at a university campus to speak. So um, the topic uh, of my talk has to do with how Protestants responded, let's say, to National Socialism. In a way, I don't like the word response because they didn't just respond. They actually created something. And in fact, not only did they create something, more than that, what I want to argue is that National Socialism, Nazism, and its racism in particular, offered Protestants, Protestant theologians, and I'm talking about theologians, educated people, professors, as well as pastors and bishops and so on. Nazism offered these Christians, Protestant theologians, an opportunity to make theology and Christianity much more sophisticated and avant-garde and exciting. They thought that by bringing racism into their theology, they would actually make more people interested in theology, make it more sophisticated. This would be an attraction to people. So I'm interested in this question, what did National Socialism do for Christian theology? What are the affinities between Christianity and racism, at least as they saw it, and how antisemitism served as the glue to bring theology together with Nazi leaders? Because when you think about it, you know, the Nazis needed a lot of things. They certainly needed soldiers. They needed economists. They needed people in factories to build what they needed to make a war, et cetera. How much did they really need theologians? Most governments don't need theologians. But these theologians wanted to be needed. And they defined 
the war in particular in this way. There is a physical battle that's fought by soldiers on the battlefield, but there's also a spiritual battle. The spiritual battle, that is the morale of the civilian population back home in Germany, as well as the morale of the soldiers who are working very hard on behalf of the Third Reich. And these theologians felt that they could fight the spiritual battle and that Germany couldn't win unless both battles were successful. So they saw themselves as essential to the war effort. Now, I just want to go back. I don't know how many of you have studied this period or the, uh, the structure of the German church during the period. So let me just say, you know, Germany was divided between Protestants and Catholics. A few more Protestants than Catholics, probably 60% Protestant, 40% Catholic. Protestants were heavily Lutheran, with a little Calvinist influences here and there. The Protestant church was divided according to each region. Some were bigger, some were smaller. So there was some degree of autonomy of the 17 regional churches, and then there was a church headquarter in Berlin. Beginning already in the late 1920s, some of these Protestant ministers and theologians came up with the idea that, in fact, nationalism and being part of the German folk, the German people, as a racial people, was something they should integrate into their Christian thinking, into their worship service, for example. So already around the time of the First World War, there were some pastors who were suggesting that perhaps the Old Testament was a Jewish book and really had no place in a German Christian Bible. In the 1920s, there were ministers who helped organize branches of the Nazi party affiliated with their churches. They took an active role in National Socialism, and many of them got together and decided to call themselves a movement. They gave themselves the name the German Christian Movement. It's very confusing because if you say the German Christians, you think any Christian who lives in Germany. But this is a name given to this particular group, and they did that deliberately, by the way, to confuse people. The German Christians supported Hitler even before he came to power. They wanted a racial church, they wanted a manly church, and they wanted a church purged of all Jewish influence. Within the Protestant church, these German Christians zoomed up in power. They took control of individual regional churches, almost all of them, and they also took control in the national headquarters by 1934. They also took control of the theological faculties, that is, seminaries where people trained to become ministers. Certainly, by 1936, you could not be appointed a professor at a German Protestant theological seminary unless you were a Nazi. That's it. And those who weren't and who were already professors were somehow eased out or marginalized. So they were very successful. Now I'm emphasizing this because I'm sure you know that many different professions in Germany got involved with national socialism. The doctors, you probably know, had the highest percentage of membership in the Nazi party. There were also even physicists. There's a book by Alan Beiersham called Scientists Under Hitler. And he says, look, even the physicists, there were some physicists who supported Hitler and wanted to come up with a kind of Nazi physics, what they called Aryan physics. Aryan meaning the opposite of, of Jewish, clearly, but meaning white, German, right, et cetera, racially pure. 
They wanted an area in physics. But how many were there? There were really only three, Bayershin tells us, three professors of physics who said, well, there is a Jewish physics that we have to get rid of, and we'll have an area in physics. And everybody treated them as kooks, and they were marginalized, and they had no particular influence. By contrast, the theologians were highly successful. By 1936, really virtually all of the theological faculties in Germany were Nazified. The journals that produced you know, articles, and was, again, Nazified. There were enthusiastic participants in the National Socialist Project, bringing their Christianity to bear, trying to come up with a Nazified Christianity, a synthesis. Now, what does it mean to have a Nazified Christianity? In November 1933, there was a big rally in Berlin that was held of these German Christians, which time they declared, we have to get rid of the Old Testament, Jesus was an Aryan, and Paul, Paul is a Jew who introduced Jewish morality into Christianity. This is November 33. Hitler had just come to power in January. There was a lot of enthusiasm in 33 for Hitler. There were some ministers in the Protestant church and, by the way, in the Catholic church as well, who were very uncomfortable with these statements made in November 33 in Berlin. For example, you may know Cardinal Faulhaber of Munich, who delivered a series of Advent sermons in 1933 against what was said at that rally. What Cardinal Fallhaber said was very similar to what some Protestants said. That is, you cannot go around changing the Bible. You can't do that. The Bible is the word of God, and you can't pick and choose in the Bible. Moreover, he said, why do you say the Bible is a Jewish book? He said, it's actually an anti-Jewish book because the prophets are always denouncing Israel. So it's a good anti-Semitic book, and we should be enthusiastic about retaining it. So you hear this from Cardinal Fellhaber, and you also hear it from some Protestant pastors. Those pastors who were really reacting very strongly, not only to the rally in November of 33, but also to some other um, rulings that were coming down from, from the government, such as, oh, you had to be eliminated from the German civil service if you were not an Aryan, if you were a Jew. Civil service is a huge thing. You couldn't teach at school and you couldn't hold a government job and so on. Anyway, there were Protestant pastors who were upset about this. Again, you can't make these kinds of, of claims to get rid of the, of the Hebrew Bible. They called themselves the Confessing Church. These were not people who were opposed to Hitler, but they were opposed to the idea of changing Christianity to bring it in accord with National Socialism. Let me give you an example of how they made the argument. One question that was raised was, Hitler said you had to fire everyone from the civil service who was a Jew. He didn't say the churches had to fire people. But then there were Protestants who said, well, we should do the same thing. We're in a national socialist state. Any minister or religion teacher or church organist who is a Jew and not an Aryan, that is somebody who had been baptized, should be fired. Now, why is this a problem? You've been baptized. What are you? You're a Christian, right? Don't you become a Christian? It's a sacrament. But they were saying, no, you're still a Jew. They were denying the validity of the sacrament. And the minister said, well, we can't go along with that. Once you deny one sacrament, you deny all of them. Here's how the German Christians argued. They said, absolutely, we have to get rid of these non-Aryans. Not that there were so many of them, 
enough. They said, remember Galatians 3.28? Anybody know that verse? In Christ there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. The German Christians base themselves on that verse. It's usually a verse that you think of as being inclusive. Everybody comes together in Christ, men and women and slave and free, no distinctions, right? This is how they used it. They said, when you go to church and you look in the pews, what do you see there? Neuters? Genderless beings? No. You see men and women, right? Hey, yes, yes, you see men and women. <laughs> right, okay. Oh, he said. Baptism does not erase your gender, clearly. So, too, it cannot erase your race. You remain a Jew by race, even after you've been baptized, just as you remain a man or a woman. So they insisted we have to remove all non-Aryans, all Jews, from any kind of position within the, within the, uh, the church. The controversy within Protestantism was between the confessing church and the German Christian movement. They were at odds and they were struggling, and it was the German Christian movement that ultimately was triumphant. That's something that I'm arguing against most historians who claim that by 1934 the German Christians disappeared. I'm arguing on the contrary. They continued for a long time and actually reached a zenith of their power by 1939. Why am I saying this? Years ago, when I was a student, a graduate student, and I was finishing up a book on the 19th century, I discovered in a library in Germany a book that was published during World War II. It was a collection of articles by theologians, and it was terribly anti-Semitic. You know, what are these theologians doing in the middle of World War II writing this kind of stuff? And who published it? And I saw that the publication was from an institute I had never heard of. It was called the Institute for the Study and Eradication of Jewish Influence on German Religious Life. So I asked some historians. You know, there are lots of historians who have worked on the churches during the Third Reich. And they said, oh, well, maybe, yes, there was such a thing. But it was very small and marginal. It was unimportant, trivial. Don't waste your time. And then I asked around, well, what happened? Who, who, who ran this institute? Where, where are the archives? You know, the paperwork, paper trail. Oh, no, there's nothing left. You'll never find anything. Anyway, I went to an, I, this institute I saw was headquartered in Eisenach in Thuringia, which is right in the geographic center of Germany. So I went after the wall came down to the church archives in Eisenach. I showed up there. They were very surprised. It's a tiny little place with two people working there. Hardly have anybody coming in to look, you know, who's interested in the church history of Thuringia. Not a lot of people. And I showed up. They told me I were amazed. I was the first Jew, the first American, and the first person with a laptop ever to come to that archive. <laughs> and they said, oh, yes, yes, we know about this. We know the people. Yes, of course. But Look, we really don't have anything. We know a few letters here and there. They showed me a few documents, but that's all we have. A year later, I went back. They said, yes, yes, we found a few more documents. But really, you shouldn't pursue this. There's nothing, nothing to write about. So every year, I would go back. And finally, by, let's say, the fourth visit, fifth visit, they said, yeah, in fact, we do have the complete set of the archives. All the paperwork is here, and yes, you can look at it. This is after I buttered them up a little, you know brought them cake and coffee and so on. Anyway, that's not why. And so I, I found the archives of this institute, and it turns out I started reconstructing the history, and I went all over Germany to different cities trying to find some more documents, and everywhere I went, I found something. It wasn't a trivial place. 
marginal. On the contrary, it was flourishing. And I started reconstructing this. This was an institute that was founded in 1939 that included as members 80 professors of theology, numerous bishops and pastors, religion teachers, lay people. They held conferences every few months, big conferences, little ones. They went on lecture tours. They published learned papers as well as popular pamphlets. And they set to work right away in 39 to de-Judaize Christianity. First thing they did was to publish their own version of the New Testament, purged of all Jewish references, the Old Testament they had already gotten rid of. Now, what do you do about the New Testament? First of all comes the genealogy in Matthew. That Jesus is descended from figures of the Old Testament. Jews, get rid of it. That was eliminated. Anything positive, where Jesus went to a synagogue and read from the Torah, celebrated Passover, all of that eliminated. But then comes the problem of Paul. I actually want to bracket that and tell you about that um, at the end of my talk as a kind of climax because I find it so extraordinary what they did. But the basic problem of this institute was how, in their own words, how to maintain the Christian commitments of Nazis. Keeping in mind that almost nobody left the church, you know, withdrew from either the Protestant or Catholic church during the Third Reich. But for example, the head of this institute was a man who was a professor of New Testament at the University of Jena, which was just down the road from Eisenach. His name was Walter Grunmann. And if you were Germans, you would know that name right away, especially if you were pastors or students of theology, because he's a very famous name. After the war, he published big, thick commentaries on the Gospels, and they were published in an inexpensive edition. And every pastor in Germany has it on his shelf and used it to write their sermons, for instance. In fact, his commentaries were required reading if you wanted to be ordained a minister into the 1990s. It was the standard thing. So he's a famous person, Walter Grunmann. He explained when the institute was opened in May of 1939, and how do you open basically an anti-Semitic propaganda institute? They had a nice reception with hors d'oeuvres. They had a string quartet playing Mozart and Schubert. And he gave the lecture. He explained that the Jews had destroyed the racial thinking of Germans, their awareness of being a race, and the Jews were now striving for world conquest. He said there was a Jewish threat to Germany and the Jewish influence on all areas of German life had to be exposed and broken. He explained why Jesus was not a Jew, but an Aryan who came to destroy Judaism so that what Hitler was doing was the work of Jesus. But he said, our people, which stands above all else in the struggle against the satanic powers of world Jews, dismisses Jesus because it cannot struggle against the Jews and open its heart to the king of the Jews. So he had to prove that Jesus was not a Jew at all. How would he do this? He argued this way. You know that in the Gospels, Jesus spends a great deal of time in Galilee, where he is warmly received. He argues that Jesus was not born in the Bethlehem that is just south of Jerusalem, which is Judea, the area of Judea, he was born in a different Bethlehem that's up in the Galilee. Why the Galilee? The Galilee was crucial for this because the northern half 
of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, was destroyed in the 8th century BCE. The Bible tells us about this. Destroyed by the Assyrians, and the population was eliminated, taken away. No one knows what happened to them. And it was laid waste, the countryside. And what happened? Foreign populations, he argued, moved into the area. Among them also, Aryans. Some of them were forcibly converted to Judaism by the violent Jews of the second century BCE. Jesus comes from a family of non-Jewish Aryans, and he was warmly received in Galilee because the Aryans who lived there could understand his message. When he went to Jerusalem, which was very Jewish, he was not warmly received. He was put to death after lots of arguments, in fact. So the distinction is made. Now this, I'm simplifying something, which is actually an argument that was built up on all kinds of scholarship and pseudo-scholarship. I mean, they said all kinds of, for instance, they said, well, his mother's name was Mary, and we all know Mary's not a very Jewish name, so, which is very stupid. <laughs> but there were also serious scholars who had argued prior to this time that there were two kinds of eschatology, a son of man eschatology in the north and a messianic eschatology in the south. In the north, that was Aryan. The south, that was Jewish. Jesus called himself son of man. He's not Jewish, etc., etc. That's how they argued. But the real issue was the antagonism toward Jews and Jewish influence. Let me give you an example of the people who got involved in this institute. There were some distinguished professors. Not all of them are so well known nowadays in, uh, in the United States. But for instance, there was a Martin Radiker, who was a professor at the University of Kiel up in the north. And who was a distinguished scholar wrote on Schleiermacher, the great 19th century theologian. He became a member of the institute didn't really need to. He already was a professor. One thinks he might be busy writing, doing scholarship, teaching. There were also, of course, younger people who got involved as members, trying to build a career. And it helped them. It helped them after the war because everybody who was involved in this project had a job after World War II, stayed in the academic community of theologians. The fact that they had, as junior people, young you know, graduate students, and instructors, the fact that they had been members of an institute during the war where they came into contact with senior professors helped them get jobs after the war. It facilitated this. So let me just give you an example of Martin Radiker. He used to deliver anti-Semitic sermons from the chapel of the University of Kiel that were broadcast on the radio. So just after Kristallnacht, which was the destruction of the synagogues and Jewish property in Germany on the 9th of November, 1938, Martin Radiker preached a sermon at the university chapel and said, quote, we can see all too clearly how the satanical power of rot is consolidated in the Jews of the world. I might just mention to you that Martin Radiker, after the war, retained his professorship served as dean of the theological faculty from 1962 until his death in 1970. He became involved in politics and was elected four times to the parliament of Schleswig-Holstein, which is the state in the north. He was a representative of the right-wing Christian Democratic Union, the CDU. And then in April of 1967, this ex-Nazi 
was awarded the highest civilian honor that West Germany could bestow, the Große Verdienstkreuz. During the end of his life, he died in 1970, 1968, some students at the University of Kiel started investigating the Nazi backgrounds of their professors, and they exposed him as having been a Nazi. And they also demanded that he apologize or say something. And he replied this way, quote, during the time of National Socialism, I already distanced myself from the Nazi regime clearly through public opposition to the Jewish policies and the cult of the Fuhrer. So I didn't have to repeat that after 1945. This is a blatant lie, and it is typical, typical of each of these figures. But here's the question. Why was racism so appealing to Protestant theologians? This institute not only published a de-Judaized version of the New Testament, it also published a de-Judaized hymnal they got rid of anything Jewish from the hymnal. That is, a hymn that had been written or the music composed by a Jew who had been baptized had to be removed. Words, Hebrew words had to be eliminated. Can you think of a Hebrew word in a hymn? Emmanuel, yes, amen, was a problem. People were so used to saying amen that it was pretty hopeless to teach them, you know. But they did suggest a German alternative. What else? Hallelujah, out. Anything else? Hmm? Jehovah, out. Hosanna, out. All of that had to be removed. Do you know the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God? It's a big Lutheran hymn. And in the third stanza, it refers to the, the Lord of hosts. Out. So they purged the hymnal. They prepared their own catechism to explain that Jesus came to speak to Arians, and his message would be particularly appealing to Arians, and so forth, and on and on like this. But why was all of this so appealing? What is it about racism? Racism, first of all, seemed sophisticated, avant-garde. More than that, it seemed as though racism actually supported the Bible. How did they argue this? And this goes associated with a man named Wilhelm Stapel. argues like this. When you read Genesis, you know that God creates, over a period of time, different things. There are plants, there are animals, there are humans, right? And it all exists in a hierarchy. There's man, there's woman, and you know who's beneath whom. <laughs> it's all very hierarchical. Furthermore, God has created certain social orders, such as marriage. It's a social order. Yes, the family. God created so too, race. Scientists, they said, scientists have proven to us that there are different races in the world and that they also stand in a hierarchy, white being <laughs> superior to black, etc. So scientists are demonstrating that on the basis of science, this kind of hierarchy that God creates in the Bible, that this is true, that science verifies the Bible doctrine. See? Very sophisticated. What else is appealing? Well, you know, another problem that they have here has to do with the origins of Christianity. Christianity originates within Judaism. That's a problem. If you don't like Jews and Judaism, how can you be proud of where your religion comes from? 
How do you explain the fact that Jesus comes as a Jew to other Jewish people, and most of them, the vast majority of them, are not interested, reject him, don't accept him? What do you do about that? It's a problem. It's a long-standing problem, especially for the historians of the 19th century, early 20th century. But now come these, these racists. What do they say? The underlying problem is a problem of shame. That is, shame over Christianity's origins in Judaism. That's really what's underlying a lot of this stuff. But what do they say? They say that clearly Jesus came to destroy what was evil, and he had to do it with the weapons of the, of the enemy. So he used certain Jewish words and Jewish ideas to conquer the Jews. Yet the Jews were so powerful that they destroyed him instead of his being able to destroy them. Now we have to undo that. But the difficulty is this. How do you de-Judaize Christianity? How do you get rid of it? You can kill Jewish people, but how do you get rid of the Jewishness within Christianity? And here I just want to give you one example about the first bit of it, that is the killing. Can a Christian actually advocate killing? And if so, how? So I'll tell you another story. A young man came to see me in Berlin about six years ago, five years ago. A guy about, I guess, 28, starting to work on his doctoral dissertation, graduate student, you know, very earnest. He wanted to write about this topic of the Protestant churches that supported Hitler. And he gave me an article he had published. It's a very nice article. The article was about a meeting that was held in February of 1936 of theologians. It took place in Dresden, but I saw from his footnotes that the archive, the transcript of what was said at this meeting, was located in an archive in Weimar. So a year or two later, I decided I wanted to read that document, along with some other things. And I went to Weimar, and I started reading the transcript that a stenographer had, had written out. It's about 50, 60 pages. It was a small meeting of about eight theologians, including some famous people, such as Paul Althaus, who's a very famous ethicist, professor at the University of Erlangen. They're sitting there at the meeting, and all of a sudden, one of the people attending, who was himself a minister, who had helped organize a branch of the Nazi party in Thuringia, was a big activist. His name was Siegfried Leffler. And he made the following statement. This is February of 1936. It means the war hadn't yet started, and the murder of Jews had not yet started. But listen to what he's saying. In a Christian life, the heart always has to be disposed toward the Jew. And that's how it has to be. As a Christian, I can, I must, and I ought always to have or to find a bridge to the Jew in my heart. But as a Christian, I also have to follow the laws of my nation, which are often presented in a very cruel way. So that again, I am brought into the harshest of conflicts with the Jew. Even... If I know thou shalt not kill is a commandment of God or thou shalt love the Jew because he too is a child of the eternal father, I am able to know as well that I have to kill him. I have to shoot him. And I can only do that if I am permitted to say Christ. Now, here's what amazed me. First of all, in 1936, they're talking about shooting Jews very unusual. And a group of theologians, and according to the transcript, nobody reacted. Paul Althaus, the ethicist, didn't jump up and say, wait a minute, you're not going to shoot anybody. No, no, they just went on with their meeting. And then also, 
what struck me was that this young man, this young historian who had written the article about it, never mentioned that. He read the whole transcript, wrote a, a published a whole long article about this meeting, and never mentioned that this guy just said, I'm going to take a gun and kill Jews while I say Christ, which to me was pretty significant. It was omitted somehow. Passed him by? What is it? Okay, so already in 36, here are theologians who were, in a sense, anticipating what was to come in terms of killing Jews. But there's another problem, and that is not just eliminating Jews as people, but eliminating the Jewishness of Christianity. Racial theory seemed to offer a way out. In what sense? You know, Judaism and Christianity are often called the mother and the daughter religions. You may have heard that certainly was a very common way of speaking in the 19th century and the 20, early 20th century. And it's clear that every central theological concept of Christianity rests on a Jewish foundation. Messiah, it's a Jewish concept. Divine election, being Israel in the spirit as opposed to Israel in the flesh. So affirming what is central to Christian teaching usually entails an affirmation of a Jewish idea or a text from the Old Testament. How does one get rid of it? The attempt to eradicate the Jewish, get rid of everything Jewish, became a kind of theological bulimia. You know what bulimia is? It's taking in and purging out. Every time something Christian was affirmed, something Jewish was brought in. And yet they wanted to eliminate it was a kind of hopeless, self-destructive rage against the Judaism within Christianity that in some way could never be eradicated without destroying Christianity. So how did this continue? During the course of the Second World War, these theologians went on lecture tours to military troops, as well as around Germany to churches and to universities. And they told their audiences that they were fighting a spiritual battle, and that the Jewishness of Christianity had to be eliminated. What's interesting here is the effort to break with Christian supersessionism. Christianity, they argued, was not an heir to Israel. It has no connection to it. Israel, overcome and destroyed, no longer provides a theological basis for the new covenant and indeed, it's the race consciousness of the German folk that responds positively to Christian teachings. That is, by bringing out the religiosity that they claimed was inherent, natural, to Aryans, to Germans, Christianity would demonstrate its worth and legitimate its existence. But there is still a problem, and that's the figure of Paul. It's clear that Jesus, on the one hand, is a Jew, but doesn't say he's a Jew. Whereas Paul gives us autobiographical information. He tells you, I was a Pharisee, zealous for the law. It's clear the guy's a Jew. What are you going to do? You can't get rid of him altogether if you're a Lutheran. You know Martin Luther adored Paul and was considered the greatest interpreter of Paul. What do you do? And here's what I find really amazing. I found a letter that was written in August of 1944 by a minister in Thuringia named Hugo Pisch, and nobody important. He sent around to a bunch of bishops, Protestant bishops, 
This is August of 44, when Germany is destroyed. The war is over, it's lost, everybody knows it, families are, everything is a wreck, the bombings, etc. It's terrible. And he sends around, he says, you know, it's fine, you know, we've de-Judaized, we've made an effort to de-Judaize Christianity, but we haven't gone far enough. And now it's time to de-Judaize Paul and get rid of him. Because by retaining Paul, we're retaining the Jew and the Jewishness within Christianity. Among the responses to Hugo Pisch was one from a bishop in Mecklenburg, Walter Schulz, who wrote, what are you crazy? This is August 1944, we're in utter destruction. Now is not the time, he said. Now is not the time. And anyway, he goes on to say, you are implying that we Germans have been duped for 2,000 years by some stinking Jew. That I found pretty remarkable for a Lutheran pastor to refer to Paul as some stinking Jew. After the war, as I mentioned, everybody did well. The man who was the director of this institute, Walter Grunmann, had joined the Nazi party in 1930. The Allies were very foolish. They said if you join the party early, then you had to give up your professorship. My own feeling is, 1930, nobody knew what Hitler was going to do. If you join the party in 1937, 38, 39, then really, right? That's to me more serious. Then you saw what was happening. But okay, so he lost his professorship, and instead he became the rector of a Protestant seminary in Thuringia. Thuringia became part of East Germany. He was considered East Germany's most illustrious theologian. He was given all kinds of special privileges and honors and awards, an, an honorary position within the church as a Kirchen, um, a church counselor. He was given all the publication he wanted, that is, it wasn't so easy to get books published, it never is, but anything he wanted to publish was published for him. And what did he do? He called up the East German secret police, the Stasi, and volunteered to work as a spy spying on his colleagues within the church. I got his Stasi file, a secret file, and I read through it. And what amazed me was that these Stasi officials are writing in their reports that this guy, Walter Grunmann, keeps calling and pursuing us and wanting us to meet and offering us data. They weren't even that interested in him. But he wanted eagerly to spy for them. So they took him on as a spy, and he reported on his colleagues in the church especially the people who had been in the opposition to his policies during World War II. He got them into trouble. And in exchange, the Stasi gave him money so that he could travel abroad and go to conferences in Switzerland and here and there. A very nice arrangement. He died in 1974. Now, when we speak about the Protestants during the war, we might ask, what if this thinking was retained after the war? I looked into some of this in my book. I think there's a lot more that someone can write about it. But let me just give you a few examples. If anybody here is thinking of writing a PhD dissertation in the field of religion, I have a great topic for you. What I found is that these Nazis, after the war, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, ran into that field, Dead Sea Scroll scholarship. Why? 
because they argued that the Dead Sea Scrolls, what do you think, were not Jewish books, that they represent a certain kind of religious thinking that actually is Iranian. What does that mean, Iranian? Aryan. It's Aryan. Nobody can use the word Aryan after World War II. It's just too tainted. Just like, you know, so just, you don't put swastikas up, so on. Anyway, so you don't say the word Aryan, but you say Iranian. And that's what they argued. They were able to continue arguing that early Christianity was influenced by the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Dead Sea Scrolls were influenced by Iranian religious ideas that came from Iran into the, the land of Palestine, of Israel. That was one way they could argue. I'll give you another example. You know I told you they felt the Jews were dangerous, wanted the destruction of Germany, that the Jews were fighting Germany, and Germany was fighting a defensive war. The Jews were attacking the Germans. In 1948, a group of Protestant lay people decided to get together and write a statement expressing remorse over the Holocaust. A bishop named Theophil Wurm heard about this and wrote them a letter, a private letter that's in an archive. And in this letter, he said the following. He, he discouraged them, let me just say. He discouraged them from issuing a statement in 1948 expressing regret about the Holocaust. Why? He said like this, quote, Can anyone in Germany speak on the Jewish question without mentioning how Jewish literature has sinned against the German people through its mockery of everything holy since the days of Heinrich Heine, a 19th century German-Jewish poet, and the ways farmers in many regions have suffered because of Jewish moneylenders? And if one wants today to take action about the rising anti-Semitism, because there were outbursts of anti-Semitism in Germany after World War II, where Jews were attacked and you know, Jewish cemeteries were defaced. So if one wants today to take action about the rising anti-Semitism, can one remain silent about the misfortune of Jews holding in the palms of their hands the allied occupying powers in order to express their understandable feelings of vengeance? You see what he's saying? The Allies are being controlled by the Jews, and the Jews want to take vengeance against the Germans. Well, one can understand that, but nonetheless, if you want to talk about anti-Semitism, think about that. And then my final example, and I'll conclude. When I was um, still in graduate school, I went to Germany in the 1980s. And there I encountered some, some ideas, let's say, that I found very disturbing. I hadn't yet worked on this project, so I didn't know where they were coming from. But I'll tell you what I found. I found this in the work of a woman named Krista Mulak, uh, who had studied theology after the war, and who was a feminist theologian, as well as in the work of Franz Alt, who was a very popular German journalist who published a bestseller called Jesus der Erste Neue Mann, Jesus the First New Man. And the argument in both books is the same. It goes like this. They give you a description of how the Nazis come into a small village in Poland, round up all the Jews, and kill them. It's a vivid description. And then it says, who could do such a thing? Well, they say, the Nazis obeyed the commands of Hitler, absolutely obeyed, completely obedient, and never questioned them. And they just did what they were told. And if Hitler said kill, they killed. Where do you find such a morality of blind obedience to orders? 
And here's what they said. You find it in Judaism. Because the Jews obey the commandments of God, just like the Nazis obey the commands of Hitler. Both of the same kind of morality, of blind obedience, doing what you're told, without thinking and without the heart. Okay, I assume I don't need to explain why that's problematic. <laughs> I hope not. That's certainly not Judaism, and my goodness, when you think of the structure of an argument like that, right? We, I mean, Germans do this, and they blame it on their Jews get killed by Germans, and it's the Jews' fault, right? But that, kind, that way of thinking itself, I only realized later, emerges right during this period of the Third Reich itself. The Jews are violent people seeking the destruction of Germany. And they're simply repeating it after the war. So those are just a few examples of how the mentality continued, at least through the 1880s, in certain German theological texts. I do think that things have changed a great deal since then, and that even during that period of the 1980s and onward, there were lots of German theologians who were deeply engaged in eliminating anti-Semitism from Christian theology and who had a kind of program of educating students that was widespread and really truly wonderful, which is why the next generation has come in by the 1990s up until today um, with a very different kind of attitude. So what do I conclude from this? Let me say that uh, this study has made me much more sensitive to issues of race within religion. Uh, I don't think that this is the one and only example, obviously, of theology collaborating with racism or racism providing something to theologians. This is just one of many examples that one can tell. And certainly we as Americans know something about that. We can't simply speak to the Germans about it. I also found that this study left me very, very miserable and uh, often in great despair. What does one do? The first time I held the Nazi documents, I actually broke out in hives, which has never happened to me before or since. And it was nothing I ate. And if you had told me such a thing was possible, I would have said, that's ridiculous. But in fact, it was so upsetting to touch these papers and to work with them. So I'm glad the project is over, and I'm glad, as Tom Landy mentioned, that I'm on to a very different kind of subject. But I think that having finished this book and put it aside, it also makes me realize that I have not just the despair over what they were like and what happened at that time, but in some sense a longing for theological traditions that are inspiring and positive and that work to conquer racism and injustice. When I was growing up, there was the civil rights movement that made me feel that religion was exactly what would overcome racism. So I was pretty shocked when I started studying this material to see the contrast. But by the time I finished this, I felt it was worthwhile because it made me appreciate more deeply what we need and what religion can offer us, and how it becomes then our responsibility to make sure that we follow the best theological traditions and beware of those that can lead us in very dangerous directions. So I thank you and look forward to your questions.